Okay, so we're going to talk more about fiber optics today. Um, that is essentially what's going on inside of the uh, TV stone. We have light guided by the fibrous structure of the, the material. And so it acts like little waveguides, and it's the same effect that you'd see in a coherent fiber bundle. We have a number of fibers closely packed. Um, first announcement is today's class can be a little bit shorter. Um, there's some activities going on after uh, in the early afternoon that I need to get to. Um, I don't know if anyone here is familiar with Dr. Arya from the department. He passed away over, over uh, spring break, so he has services this afternoon. Um, so it'll be a short, short class. Uh, we'll finish up our discussion of fiber optics, and I wanted to go over a couple things from the homework. Um, a number of people had problems interpreting the transmission spectrum of a Fabry-Perot interferometer. So I wanted to go over that a little bit because this is a very common tool that gets used in optics labs to, under to measure relative wavelength differences and frequency spectrums of various sources. So what we have is this repeating pattern at the output of the Fabry-Perot interferometer. So let me draw what this experiment might look like. We've got some sort of light source. It's probably a laser, um, but we're not told explicitly. And it has more than one wavelength component to it. We've got a Fabry-Pro interferometer, which is a pair of mirrors. The light can bounce around between the mirrors. If the path length, the round trip path is an integer multiple of a wavelength, then the light will add up constructively inside the cavity. And if you have light of high intensity inside the cavity, you'll get a measurable intensity leaking through the back mirror. Okay, so that happens whenever the length is an integer multiple of, the, of half of a wavelength. So the round trip length is an integer multiple of wavelengths. So if you have different wavelengths of light, that happens at different cavity lengths. So you can scan the mirror and put that on a piezoelectric transducer, apply a voltage, like a, a, wave, a, soft, a sawtooth wave, and move that mirror back and forth with a linear ramp. If you do that, then the power that you detect on, an, on a photodiode can be plotted on an oscilloscope. If you trigger it so that it's only plotting the power, say, when the waveform is rising, then what you'll have is some pattern, and the time axis on the oscilloscope is going to be linearly proportional to the uh, change in length of the cavity. So we can treat that as the, the cavity length. And typically, then what you'd have is some plot that would look like this. And if you know the wavelength of your light source, you can then say that this pattern is going to repeat every time the cavity length changes by half a wavelength. That's when the round trip length changes by a full wavelength. And that's usually how you would say, um, that's usually how you would calibrate this, this axis here. On an oscilloscope, this would be in units of seconds. And if you know the wavelength, then you can convert this into the physical length of the, of the cavity or the change in physical length. And that was already done for you. Okay, so there's really no way. Um, in most, in the traditional, in the most common 
use of this scanning confocal FabriPro interferometer to measure the actual length change, other than to know the wavelength that's going in and use that separation to say that's half a wavelength. So in our case, we were told what those lengths were. So this distance was 250 nanometers. Therefore, the wavelength is twice that. Okay, so everybody did OK with that. I think that was like part C or D. Um, but it's not, but there's some structure to this pattern that tells us something as well. And so we zoom in on the structure over here. And so the high, let's see, the, the separation of these two peaks tells us something about the difference between the wavelengths. The, the different wavelengths are resonant in the cavity at two different cavity lengths. We know those two different cavity lengths, then we can know what those two different wavelengths are. We don't know the cavity lengths. Uh, we just know the change in the cavity length. The width of that line tells us something about the cavity finesse. Cavity finesse is how many of these lines would fit into this repeating pattern. It would fit into one free spectral range. Okay, so a free spectral range is in frequency, it's C over 2L. That's how much the frequency needs to change in order to fit one more wavelength inside the round trip cavity. Um, so this is just a formula that you can look up. Um, and it's a formula that's commonly used to relate the length of a cavity to the frequency free spectral range. Now, almost everybody said that the, I said to give uh, free spectral range in terms of frequency and in terms of wavelength. So most people said for wavelength, it is this distance, 250 nanometers. So that's not what I was looking for. Um, the question is, how much does the wavelength have to change in order to fit one more wavelength inside the cavity? And it's not 250 nanometers. Instead, what we do is we say, um, from C equals lambda over F, we can relate a change in the wavelength to a change in the frequency, such that this condition is met. Okay, so we do that by differentiating both sides. C is a constant. That's derivative of 0. And on the right side, we have a uh, chain rule situation. Lambda df plus f d lambda. And so we can rearrange this to get df over f is minus d lambda over lambda. Or if you're only interested in magnitude, you can say um, the relative change in frequency is equal to the relative change in wavelength. And so if you calculate the free spectral range of this in frequency using C over 2L, that was 500 megahertz. The actual frequency of a, you have to calculate of a 500 nanometer light source um, is C over lambda. So we can say that we can solve this expression for D lambda. It's lambda times DF over F.
And we can write that as lambda squared df over c. Okay, which is not 250 nanometers, um, something much smaller. I don't remember what the number was offhand. Although I might. I don't have it here. So 250 nanometers was how much the cavity length had to change in order to fit one more mode into the cavity or one more wavelength. The value you calculate here is how much the wavelength has to change for a fixed cavity length. And that's what, that's what I was asking. You can see it's proportional to lambda squared and inversely proportional to c. So essentially, it's going to be a small number. If, if I have a wavelength that's on the order of 10 to the minus 6, c is 10 to the 8 in the denominator. It's 10 to the minus 12 over 10 to the 8 is, is 10 to the minus 20 times 500 megahertz, something like 10 to the minus 14. Okay, so it's going, to be a, it's going to be much smaller than a nanometer, much smaller than a wavelength. Um, so if we want to say how much different these two wavelengths have to be if they're the same mode number, meaning they both have the same number of wavelengths in the cavity, but the cavity needs to be a slightly different length to accommodate them. Um, a lot of people said, well, the wavelengths have to be different by 2 nanometers. And again, this, these distances, 1 nanometer, 2 nanometers, 250 nanometers, are readings I'm reading off of this axis here, which is a cavity length, which is not the wavelength. So what we can do is, if we calculate d lambda, that's the free spectral range in terms of wavelength. It's how much the wavelength needs to change in order to fit one more mode inside the cavity, then we can say that this distance here can be described as how much the, the cavity needs to change to fit one more mode in. Or if you described it as terms of how much the wavelength would have to change, you can, change, you can reset this axis. You can calibrate it in terms of wavelength. And this would be, say, lambda 1. This would be some, some wavelength, and this would be that plus one free spectral range. So this distance is a free spectral range. And if the axis is in frequency, then this distance is equal to c over 2l. If this distance is in wavelength, or if this axis is in wavelength, this distance is lambda squared over c times c over 2l. So. lambda squared over 2L. And if you do that, if you say how far this distance is in terms of wavelength, then you can read off this physical, you can, the fractional separation of these peaks relative to the free spectral range is the same whether it's in terms of cavity length or wavelength. So the fractional wavelength, we can read off the, or the fractional separation is uh, is 2 nanometers out of 250. So if you multiply that fraction by the free spectral range and wavelength, you get the wavelength separation. 
Okay, so that was the method um, that you wanted to follow. And really, the, my concern was the interpretation of what this axis is. This axis is a cavity length. And we can relate this plot to changes in wavelength or frequency by, um, by calibrating it using these, this free spectral range and then essentially replacing that axis with a, with a wavelength or a frequency that is calibrated such that in this distance it changes by one free spectral range. OK, so let's go back to fibers. Uh, we talked about how fibers have distortion in them. Um, one type of distortion comes from having a multimode fiber, where there are different path lengths that the light can take through a fiber. And we saw this gave rise to a limited data rate that can propagate through a fiber that has multiple modes supported in it. And we saw that even in a fiber that only has a single mode, there is also a type of distortion called dispersion that comes from the glass having some wavelength-dependent index of refraction. And so a bit that goes in, which is just a square wave modulated um, light field, because this bit has some profile like this, a square profile, it's going to have in frequency space the Fourier transform of that. So in so the intensity is a function of time. Looks like this. It's just from a sine a sine wave underneath a top hat. And that's the electric field. We square it. We get a sine squared under a top hat. The intensity is a function of frequency, which we calculated. We did this example of a uh, top hat modulated sinusoidal wave when we did Fourier transforms. Had had a sinc squared profile centered around the center frequency. So if our carrier wave, carrier wave is the term that describes the optical signal that's underneath this top hat profile. If it has a frequency of f naught, then the spectral distribution of the light is going to be centered around f naught. There's also some components around minus f naught that would account for the wave traveling in the backwards direction. So if we consider this as a traveling wave in the forward direction, we neglect that part of the frequency spectrum and say the frequencies is centered around f naught and has a bandwidth
of 1 over tau. And so the pulse width was tau. The bandwidth here was 1 over tau. And so it can be useful to think about this square wave going into the fiber. Instead of thinking about it in the time domain, it can be useful to think about what happens in the frequency domain. In the frequency domain, we can think about there being an infinite number of plane wave CW frequency components, each with different frequency. The amplitude of the different frequencies is mapped out by this function. And each one goes through the fiber. Each one gets delayed by a different amount due to the dispersion. And when they come out, I have the same relative amplitudes, but different phases for each one of these. When you do the inverse Fourier transform, then, you would recover your initial pulse if there was no distortion, if there was no phase delay that changed as different frequencies change. But because there is this dispersion, you don't get the same function out. You get something that's spread out, and probably should draw it more like this. So you can think of it, some frequencies travel faster than others. So when they add up to reproduce this pulse, the different components have drifted out of phase. And you no longer get this nice square pulse. You get some, some spreading. A more simplified but less correct way is to think about all these different frequency components as each being a little square pulse. Those square pulses all get spread out in time. And so when they add up, you get not just a single square pulse, but a bunch of them adding up at different times to produce sort of this this profile. And that's shown over here. Well, yeah. Yeah. The frequency? Over here? Yeah. This is the Fourier transform of a square wave. It's a sinc squared. That's what I was drawing. Okay, so let me describe just the procedure. This is a very useful procedure for modeling the effects of, um, of dispersion in an optical system. You have a, some input function. For your light. First, you take the Fourier transform of that. You describe it as a bunch of different frequencies. And so the Fourier transform
can be used to express that input function. So the input function is the superposition of a bunch of different waves. Each has a particular frequency. We're adding them all up. Each one has a particular amplitude given by the Fourier transform. And when you add them all up, they interfere to produce your original function. Now if you have a disturbance, or some frequency-dependent delay, you can take your individual sinusoidal components and add a delay to them. Here's a phase that the light gets when propagating a distance l in a material that has an index of refraction that's a function of omega. If the index of refraction is not a function of omega, then this is just a constant phase delay. So when you, so what this represents now is now the Fourier frequency components of the input after they propagated to the output of a system. And when we add those all up, we get the pulse at the output. So a lot of modeling of data systems use that type of analysis. I omega L over C is the propagation time. So omega times time. And there's an index of refraction. So the optical path length is NL. OK. OK, so I think Mark asked last time, uh, is there a way to use different wavelengths in the same fiber? And there is. Um, essentially, what you have is a fiber that has generally much larger bandwidth than the lasers that can be used to produce the data that gets sent through the fiber. So around. 1550 nanometers, which is where most fibers are used for communications, the fiber has a bandwidth of about 40 or 50 nanometers, meaning light from about 1525 to 1575 nanometers can propagate through the fiber with low loss and uh, can be used for communications. Problem is the lasers that operate at 1550 nanometers, they're the indium gallium arsenide phosphide lasers, can only be modulated at a certain rate. There's a limit to how fast you can modulate them. Another way of saying that, there's a limit to their bandwidth. So they have a bandwidth of about one nanometer. Okay, so you can, you can um, you may be able to send in pulses that are as short as that, 
but your laser can only produce pulses that are as short as that. Right? So the entire bandwidth available to the fiber may not be available to the communication system if you just have a single laser. What you can do is, essentially, let me redraw this. I want to do what I did before and draw the time dependence of a particular bit in its frequency spectrum. If I have a very short pulse in time, then its bandwidth is very large. And this might represent the uh, available bandwidth of my fiber. The available bandwidth of the fiber allows the pulses to be a certain, to have a certain length, a certain uh, amount of shortness to them. So the longer the bandwidth, the wider the bandwidth and frequency, the narrower the pulses can be in time. Okay, so let's imagine this is the Fourier transform of this minimum pulse width. Call that tau min. And I'll call this bandwidth f max. And so if you look at the loss in the fiber and you find that it's suitably low over a 50 nanometer range, you can relate that to the uh, frequency of light and say that there's some frequency bandwidth for the light you send into the fiber and that gives you some minimum pulse width that you can have. Now if your lasers that you're modulating to produce these pulses cannot be turned on and off that quickly then you've got some bit length or bit rate for each laser that's quite a bit longer than the minimum bit length that the fiber can support. Okay, and so a wider pulse in time means what to the Fourier transform? Narrower. Right. So this Fourier transform might look like that. So if this is a square pulse, the Fourier transform is a sink squared. So clearly, that all those frequency components fit within the bandwidth of the fiber. You can think of this as like a window. Regions where the uh, regions within this curve can propagate through the fiber. So this represents a laser that has a frequency centered at this particular point. If you could modulate the laser faster, if you could make that pulse shorter, that would increase this width. But if you can't, what you can do is you can then take another laser that operates at a different center frequency and also modulate it. And you can, these are essentially two different 
wavelengths. You can send them through the same fiber. You can distinguish them, even if they're overlapping, because they're different wavelengths. So the Fourier transform of this green pulse may have the same shape, but it's centered at a different frequency because it's a different wavelength. Uh, we'll look at the way that it's most commonly done, but yes, you could put a diffraction grating at the output and you could, in theory, separate these. In practice, um, that's not how it's done. But you could also do that at the input to get multiple light or light from multiple lasers into a single beam. And so you can fill up, you can overlap many different data streams from different lasers that all have slightly different frequencies. And to the extent that the frequencies all lie within the bandwidth of your fiber, then they can all be transmitted. And that's called wavelength division multiplexing. Mark? It's more useful to get more information through having a long uh, pulse from a laser or having a short pulse from a laser? A short pulse. If you had a single laser that could produce this minimum pulse, <coughs> then you could then its transform would fill this bandwidth window. And if you think about this as being the, representing the capacity of the fiber, if you can uniformly fill that, that's, that's the best you can do. And if you have multiple lasers, um, typically there's some, there's some little buffer region in between them. So the wavelength, so the bandwidth of each laser needs to be fully separated, or the the frequency band with which one laser transmits needs to be fully separated from the next, so there's usually some unused space. Yeah. So here's sort of a block diagram of how that works. You send signals uh, into a multiplexer from multiple wavelengths. That combines them into a single beam that travels through the fiber. And then at the other end, you have a demultiplexer to separate them back out into the different wavelength components that can be read out with some electronics. And so if you use this wavelength division multiplexing, you can fill the entire bandwidth of the fiber. Um, so here I took a number of about 35 nanometers as the bandwidth. And if you consider 35 nanometers over 1,550 nanometers and a frequency that corresponds to 1,550 nanometers, then delta F, the, the bandwidth of the fiber in terms of frequency, not in terms of wavelength, is about 4 by 4.4 terahertz. So 4 times 10 to the 12 hertz. Okay, so a couple ways to say that. Um, a television channel is 6 megahertz. So that could carry 700,000 television channels. A telephone call occupies about 4 kilohertz of bandwidth. So it could carry um, essentially all the world's telephone calls through a single fiber. Okay, so the data carrying capacity is very large. Um, so roughly four, well, if you want to convert that into bits per second, 
Um, there's a numerical factor that comes from the fact that a bit, um, a bit cannot be as short as a single pulse, a single cycle, but it's on the order of terabit per second possible through a fiber. OK, so let's look at uh, some of the devices that are commonly used for these multiplexers and demultiplexers. The most common technique is based on the Moxender interferometer. Typically, um, it's not this type of interferometer like I often draw on the board, but it's one that's integrated in a waveguide so that these paths don't represent free space paths between mirrors, but rather um, paths in a high index core that's traveling through a low index substrate and is embedded in a chip. Um, but the principle is the same. And the idea is that in a mock sender, that's a two-beam interferometer where the two beams travel different paths and then recombine at the output. So at this output, there's a path that allows the light to recombine here. And there's one that allows it to recombine there. So there's two output ports. And just due to conservation of energy, if the energy flows out one port, it doesn't flow out the other. The total energy flowing out the two ports has to equal the energy put in. Okay, so the interference condition can be worked out. And I'm going to draw this for the free space mock sender. And let's consider what is output port 1 for a 50-50 beam splitter, uh, or an interferometer with 50-50 beam splitters. So if a beam splitter is 50-50, meaning it transmits 50% of the power and reflects 50% of the power, what is its reflection coefficient and transmission coefficient? It's square root of 0.5. because the power is related to that quantity squared. Um, the reflection coefficient has a magnitude of 1 over root 2. And it can be either positive or negative, depending on which side of the mirror it's reflecting from. We saw in the Fresnel reflection coefficients that going from high index to low index produces a phase shift. Going from low index to high index does not. So same thing in the mirror. The one wave will be inverted on reflection, and one will not. So one will be inverted, and light reflecting in the other direction will not be. Okay, So um, let's let there be a path length difference between these two beams. And let's write what the output is at output port 1. So if we have E-naught going in, then the field at output port 1 is made up of two components, one which is transmitted through the first beam splitter, reflected from the second, and I'll call that a positive reflection, and acquires a phase shift of E to the I KL1. And then it has a component that reflects from the first beam splitter. 
And I'm going to call that a negative reflection. I'm going to say it's a positive reflection when reflecting off the bottom and a negative reflection when reflecting off the top. It's, that may not be the physical case. If I can just arbitrarily choose that and uh, work out my results if that were the case. And I'll write the um, path length as L1 plus delta L. So if I do it that way, the e to the i k L1 factors out. If r and t each have a magnitude of 1 over square root of 2, their product is 1 half. So this is 1 half, this is minus 1 half. And let's see, I can write this as e to the minus i k delta l over 2 minus e to the i plus i k delta l over 2. So if I put an i in the denominator and one in the numerator, then this term in parentheses becomes minus sine of k delta l over 2. And so the intensity, which is proportional to the field squared, the, the magnitude of the field squared, these phase terms out front don't contribute when I take the absolute value. And I get the intensity is going to equal the input intensity times sine squared of k delta L over 2. And my expression up here is missing the over 2. So I can write k as 2 pi over lambda. And that's what I get for the intensity out port 1. Without doing the math, can anyone tell me what the intensity out port 2 must be? Yeah, it's got to be cosine in order for the total intensity to add up to be i naught. Because sine squared plus cosine squared equals 1. Okay, So that's what the transmission at port 1 and port 2 look like. And they're functions of wavelength. So it will split different wavelengths into different paths. Okay, so if you're doing a multiplexer or demultiplexer, that's what you want. You want different wavelengths to be split into different paths. And if I plot I1 as a function of wavelength, it looks like this. Um, this distance, let's see, let's say this distance, 
which I'll call um, delta lambda, is the value of lambda that causes this argument to change by pi over 2. I can solve for delta lambda. Or alternatively, if I'm trying to separate different wavelengths that have a given wavelength difference, I can determine from this expression the value of delta L necessary to do that. And so what this will do, let's say I have a delta L set up such that this is 1 nanometer. Then, let's say at 1,550 nanometers, all the power goes out port 2. At 1,551 nanometers, all the power goes out port 1. 1,552, all the power goes out port 2. So what this is doing is it's splitting not just my two wavelengths, but it's splitting all the odd wavelengths and all the even wavelengths into two different ports. So it doesn't necessarily separate um, all possible wavelengths, but you could chain together a bunch of these things. So let's say you put in four wavelengths into one port of a Mach's ender. You could have it split the even and the odd wavelengths. And then you could have another Mach's ender that split those. And so you could cascade these devices. And you might, in an actual application, have about 40 different uh, channels that you use. So you need something like five, five or six um, of these Mach senders in series. So when you, if you ask, is that reasonable, then you can calculate the path length difference necessary to separate one nanometer channels, and you get about 800 microns. So if you need five of these, it only takes five millimeters of space. So the path length difference, the total path length difference, has to be able to add up to be five, nano, uh, five millimeters. So you can build a device like this, where one path is essentially zero, and the other one is like a little loop that goes about a millimeter. And then you can build the whole thing in, inside of a very small chip. And then, of course, this system will work with time reversal symmetry. So if you put wavelength 4 here, wavelength 2 there, wavelength 3 there, and wavelength 1 there, they'll all get recombined and come out here. So the same system can work as a multiplexer, as a demultiplexer. OK, so um, if you look to buy fibers and you go on the web, Thor Labs is, is a vendor that sells uh, fibers that you might use in a research lab. If you go to their webpage and you look at what's available, um, multi-mode and single-mode fibers are the two types of fibers that we've talked about. And those are sort of the generic, um, the generic fibers that are typically described in, in texts. Um, there's a lot more than just those two types of fibers. Um, so let me go through sort of what the options are. 
These are spools that have just the bare fiber, the fiber and the cladding. These are ones that have that plastic jacket on them. So you can buy, you know, 100 meters of fiber rolled up on a spool, or you can buy these little patch cords that are a meter or so long. You can see that you can buy it with different numerical apertures. So that's the difference between these fibers over here. Um, that comes largely from the size of the fiber or the materials that they use. There's something called polarization maintaining fiber. I think I mentioned when we talked about the number of modes that can propagate through a fiber, that there's two different possible polarizations that can propagate. So for every, for every geometrical path that the light can take, there's two possible modes. Well, there's some situations where you want the light to stay, uh, have one particular polarization as it propagates through the fiber. You want to differentiate those two modes. So these polarization maintaining fibers can be used. And what this is, this shows a, a cross-section of the fiber core. So actually, that's the core. This blue is the cladding. And this white is some other material that's put into the fiber. It's far away from the core, so it really has no effect on the, the optic directly. But when you, but it has a different, uh, probably, let me see, a different, uh, Thermal expansion coefficient is probably what's different about it. So when you pull the fiber from your initial spool, um, you have it heated up. And as it cools, this structure changes length relative to this and introduces strain. That strain, because of the geometry, produces some orientation of the glass molecules in the middle as they get pulled um, due to that strain. And that produces a preferential polarization direction for the light to propagate in. It can actually propagate in either polarization direction, but the index of refraction is, is, uh, is different for the two polarization directions. So generally, the light won't couple between polarizations. If you don't have that, the light's polarization can sort of wander as it goes through the fiber. So that's called the polarization-maintaining fiber. Um, Then there's these ones down here, which look quite a bit different. These are, well, we'll get to those in a second, actually. Let me just point out these last ones. There's um, ytterbium and erbium-doped fibers. I mentioned erbium-doped fiber amplifiers. You can sort of see here there's this, uh, this, this is probably a, a doping profile that extends out into the cladding. And these are used for amplifiers, as I mentioned. Oftentimes, the light is pumped directly into the cladding. And then the pump light gets guided through this larger multi-mode core. And then the signal gets amplified inside the, uh, the actual core. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so this fiber, if, it, if you just send a signal into it and from one end, the other end will come out attenuated, will come out with less power. So you also have to send in some pump. Pump light means more energy from an outside source. So usually a laser diode would sit somewhere over here and shine light in. That light would get confined to this. Yeah. That light would get confined in this core, would travel along the fiber. And the energy in that pump light would get converted into the signal in the core. What's a non-Lucian fiber? Ah, where is that? 
OK, so these PCF means photonic crystal fibers. And what you can see is that there's sort of this uh, pattern of, of spots in there. And so that's what I wanted to get to. OK, so there's a new type of fiber. Wade? Real quick for you. Uh, we talked in, in the computer industry, we talked about um, communication with fiber. We use the term shortwave. Okay. Do you, do you know how that related? That was one of those multi-mode and one of those single-mode? Do you know about that? I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Just curious. If you figure it out, let me know. I'll figure it out today. Okay. So um, there's another type of fiber. Uh, we don't have quite the, uh, it's a little bit beyond the scope of this class to discuss the mechanism that leads to this. We can sort of uh, draw a couple, couple simple physical models that explain how this works. but. Um, you basically have a, a silica cladding, so a glass cladding, and there's holes in it uh, that change the effective index of refraction of this material out here. So if you have holes that are filled with air and glass, which is a higher index, um, if the geometry is such that the light sort of sees an average of those materials, it'll see a lower index of refraction in this cladding region. And so you can guide the light not with distinct materials, but with distinct geometry in the materials. And one of the reasons this is, uh, this is interesting is you can then engineer this fiber by changing the spacing and, and location of the holes to change the properties of the fiber. So this is new in the past 10 years or so. Marie? So is it like, I don't know, a bunch of spaghetti kind of a thing? That's what it looks like. So. It's little bubbles. So the way you would make this is you'd start off with a large cylinder that has this geometry. So it could be glass where you literally drill holes into it, or it could be like capillary tubes that are fused together. You got the thin capillaries, or they could be other materials. So you could think of fibers of a bunch of materials lined up, and then like molten glass float around it, something like that. Um, and then when it gets pulled out, that that transverse profile gets maintained in the fiber. Um, and so here, the basic properties are the same as those of, uh, of the fibers we talked about. You have a high index core, a lower index cladding. The mechanism that produces the lower index cladding is a little more uh, complicated. Um, and because you can engineer that transverse profile, you can engineer a lot of the properties of the fiber. Maybe more interesting for physicists type of fiber is one where the center is empty, either vacuum or just air in the center. And this array of holes is actually designed such that light that's propagating radially outward sees this like a stack of dielectrics, which is what form high reflector mirrors. Um, laser mirrors in the lab are glass with a stack of dielectrics on them. And essentially, the Fresnel reflection from each interface of these little bubbles comes back and Light's directed radially outwards, it reflects radially inwards. So you can think of this more as just like a traditional mirror around an evacuated cylinder in the center. Um, you can also describe it in terms of the photonic band gap, but that's beyond the, the, the scope of this class. So they're called photonic band gap fibers. And one of the nice things about them is because they have a hollow core, they're less, in, at least in theory, less susceptible to damage. The power of the light is not going through anything. A typical fiber, um, one of the 
drawbacks of using fibers uh, in applications other than data communications. So if you try to put a lot of power through a fiber, they generally confine that power to a very small area. You get very high intensities and you get damage. Okay, so you can't use them for pumping around uh, watts of power. Typically, uh, microwatts is, is the amount of power, milliwatts to microwatts, that's put into fibers. So if you have a hollow core, you can get around that issue. You can also get around the dispersion limitation that's present when you have a material with an index of refraction that varies as a function of wavelength. So in theory, these can be used with no dispersion and with no loss. Okay. In the wavelength range that this is designed for. And this design is highly wavelength dependent. So the bandwidth might not be quite as good. I mean, or it takes a the bandwidth is something that can be engineered. The loss is something that can be engineered. And the dispersion is something that can be engineered and aren't necessarily properties of the material. So all those things can be traded off in the design. Okay. And there's a lot of people interested in doing that right now. And uh, I'm not exactly familiar with what the current state of those trade-offs are and how they compare to traditional fibers. Okay, so here are some of the advantages of these more advanced fibers. Um, They can be made to be single mode, even for wavelengths that uh, would not normally be single mode in a traditional material. So we said that lambda, uh, lambda over d, where d was the diameter of the fiber, needed to be um, greater than about 1 in order to be single mode. So there's wavelengths with, for wavelengths that are smaller than the fiber diameter, that generally would not be the case. That constraint can be uh, relaxed a little bit when uh, these fibers are properly designed. This one I think is kind of neat. Um, the chromatic dispersion of the fiber can be engineered. So the dispersion of the fiber can be zero if you have a hollow, if essentially the light's not going through any material. You can also design it to have anomalous dispersion which means um, the opposite sign of dispersion, so that the wavelengths, which are usually slowed down, get sped up through the fiber. So you can cancel off the dispersion in traditional fiber, or in traditional materials, using this fiber. And another very practical advantage is if you want to put high power through a fiber, or if you have a power that approaches the damage threshold, typically what happens is the fiber itself is very pure silica and has low absorption, and that's usually not where the damage occurs. But if this is the core, and you have the light coming in, focused into the core and then spreading out at the other end, at the surface, if any contamination, the so dust particle lands on the surface, it gets burned, and damages the surface, and then the fiber cracks and is no longer usable. One of the ways to deal with that in a traditional fiber is you can bond a piece of glass, a glass window, onto the end. And then the surface with the air is out here where the light is much more spread out and the intensity is much lower. Okay, that's, obviously, that's uh, labor-intensive and leads to these big glass windows on the end of these little fibers. They're not that, they don't, 
package readily with other fiber optic uh, devices. So in these materials that have, well, that have a cross-section like this, at the end, you can just remove all of this structure. So you have your bool that you're making this fiber out of, and at the end, you just have solid glass. So this is what happens through the bulk of the fiber, and at the very end, where it terminates, you just have it turn into regular glass. And so then the cladding becomes functionally equivalent to that window that you had to glue on before. So there's some interesting applications to these. Um, and they're, they're not in our textbook. They're not discussed in our textbook. They're not discussed in most textbooks just because they're so new. So I just wanted to mention them um, and point out that there's really some interesting things being done. Uh, this is a paper that was published, that sh or this is a press release about a paper that was published that describes an artificial black hole inside one of these photonic band gap fibers. Um, if you read through it, it's uh, perhaps the media it a little bit to make it sound more interesting than it actually is. Uh, they send a near-infrared pulse through the fiber produced what's called a soliton, which is a nonlinear effect in the fiber. Um, and that's one of the things that you can do with these, uh, these photonic crystal fibers, is you can put material in the core that has nonlinearity, which is what that nonlinear fiber from Thor Labs was. Um, they can change the index of refraction as a function of the power. So the index of refraction is no longer an, a property of the material. It's a property of the material interacting with the light. And you can essentially create this little traveling bubble of the index of refraction that will slow light down or speed it up, depending on whether the light is behind it or ahead of it, and essentially trap the light. And so that's what they're considering as the analog to a black hole. The so light is trapped in this moving little soliton. So, um, that's it for fiber optics. Um, the things that you should take away from this, most of what we did today was just sort of informational. Um, the things that we'll be using for calculations we discussed last time. Um, we have to understand total internal reflection um, and that there's a maximum angle at which light can go into the fiber in order to maintain total internal reflection. So we talk about the maximum angle, the numerical aperture as a measure of that quantity. And then we can talk about the number of modes that can propagate in a fiber. And that's important for understanding um, the behavior of light after it propagates a long distance through the fiber. OK, that's all for today.